0: Hello, my name is Mark Gibson, and you're listening to the podcast version of the Chagask Signpost Series, a weekly webinar that promotes and examines sustainability in Irish farming. Good morning, and you're very welcome to this morning's Signpost webinar. Uh, My name is Pat Murphy, Head of Environment Knowledge Transfer. And this morning, I'm I'm, uh, delighted to be joined by Dr. Sinead McCarthy. Uh, Sinead is a, a, a public health and nutrition uh, researcher based at Ashtown in in Dublin, uh, and you're going to be talking to us about sustainable diets and uh, balancing personal and planetary health. This is uh, has been a big issue in the public domain over the last number of years. It is. And, and it's, it's it's
1: constantly in the public domain, even so much this week, the COP26. I, I avoided going there just to present here this morning, Pat. Oh, very good. Very good. we <laughs> um, honoured. So it, it's constantly there. The dairy companies earlier in the week, I think, were meeting to sign agreement on methane emissions. And so everything we do in our daily lives has a, has a climatic impact. And, and food is one of the aspects that really receives a lot of significant focus as well.
0: But there's the other side of it, and the other side is what is best for us as humans in terms of our health, our well being, and our longevity, if you want.
1: Yeah. So it's not it's it's not, I suppose the message that I'll try and communicate today, it's not just as simple as an easy swap. And um, it's if you go from a high carbon food to a low carbon food, it isn't it might be more sustainable, but it isn't necessarily more healthy from a nutrition and nutrient perspective.
0: OK, and, and I suppose what we're looking forward to you, from you is a very balanced uh, yes. uh, discussion on it, because some of the, the, the discussions in this space can be very much to one extreme or, or, or another.
1: Yeah, and all, all of the work that I'm presenting today, um, I've brought it down into a simple format, but it all comes from published research that I've been working in with other colleagues across Ireland from the universities outside of Chagas. So this is peer-reviewed research, um, and it wouldn't get out there unless it was you know, unbiased and, and balanced as well. Very good.
0: I'm also delighted uh, to be joined by Seamus Carney. Seamus, you're very, very welcome. Thank you very much, Pat. Uh, you'll be helping with, with questions later on.
2: So, yeah, so. Tinead,
0: without further ado, then, if you would share your presentation.
1: Great. Thanks, Million. And thanks for the introduction, Pat. And thank you for the invitation to present to this group today. So over the next half hour or so, I'm going to bring you through some of the research that I've been working on for the last um, five to six years and trying to get that balance right between the nutrients and food that we need for our personal health, but also then how do we balance out the carbon footprint and the climatic impact um, and the planetary health of the foods we consume. So it's a bit of a battle trying to just get that scales in balance there between both sustainability and health. When I talk about carbon footprint of, of foods throughout the, the session, and um, this is what I'm referring to essentially, and um, that the carbon food, the carbon footprint is the total amount of greenhouse gases associated with, with producing that food and consuming that food. We often see that plant-based foods like your carrots have a low carbon footprint. And then as we move up, Um, the scale of carbon footprint we find the higher carbon footprint foods like red meat at the top and there are lots of other metrics in terms of sustainability of food from land use and water footprint as well that I'm not going to go into today today's talk will just focus on the, the carbon footprint but ideally you do combine all of the different metrics so to begin with the Irish diet the average consumer from all of the foods that we eat generates about six and a half kilos of carbon per day arising from the foods that we consume Um, and you'll see this this blue cloud with 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 carbon coming up every so often and it's the carbon footprint that i'm referring to here to give a little bit of context we often hear that um agriculture food and agriculture and the production of food accounts for 30 percent of global greenhouse gas emissions And in some respects, that's not surprising because we have to eat food. It's one of the activities that we do every day that we absolutely have to engage in. And we can't, harking back to COVID days, we could happily not travel. We could happily stay within a a two or three person bubble, a 5K limit. um, But we always had to get to the shops and get our food. So it's one of the activities we just, for survival, we have to engage in. So to just give a little bit of context to food and carbon footprint, I want to talk for just a moment about the carbon footprint of everyday activities other than food consumption that we actually engage in. So what does three kilos of carbon footprint look like or three kilos of, of um how how what, what do we do that generates three kilos of footprint? So here's the ah uh, moment. And um, there's my dog Molly the collie and um, Molly is a, a fantastic loyal friend in my household and to feed Molly each day costs about three kilos of carbon in terms of the pet food that she consumes she's purely just here for pleasure a bit of a watchdog and she brings me out for long walks at the weekend so there's a healthy aspect to her but otherwise there's not really very much we're getting for that three kilo cost per day and for those of you who like to stream your movies online on whatever streaming device that you use approximately an hour, an hour and a half movie or two hours of a movie um, will also generate about three kilos of emissions. So that's in terms of the data centers, packaging and that quality data into a, a movie that has to be delivered with sound and everything to your TV or device. And then your average spaghetti bolognese or portion of beef bolognese is also three kilos. So the point I'm trying to make here is that we have to consume this piece the other two activities really of what we engage in um, over the course of the day aren't essential activities so we need to put that emphasis back on food being an essential carbon cost if you like and um, but we still need to produce it sustainably So getting into food-based dietary guidelines to begin with, how do we get the balance right of the foods that we eat, that they'll keep our body healthy, but also that we maintain the health of the planet at the same time? So just to start very quickly with an introduction to healthy eating, if you like, and the, the evolution of dietary guidelines. So, we need to he- eat a healthy diet that's rich in fruit and veg that covered the rainbow. You're often told to eat the rainbow, and that's because of the phytochemicals that are present in fruit and veg, like carotenoids. These carotenoids are essential in our diet, they're one of the many benefits of consuming fruit and veg. When we consume them, they go through our system into our bloodstream and essentially they mop up the bad cholesterol that we hear about, LDL, they help promote a high level of good cholesterol in our bloodstreams. And when we consume a high level of of fruit and veg, it helps to keep our arteries clean, if you like. So we don't see the deposits here in the arteries that increase our risk of heart disease um, and increase our risk of stroke and so on. So that's one of the many reasons why we need to eat a healthy diet. And it's why our fruit and veg is at the bottom of the food pyramid in terms of eating a high amount of it. But in terms of communicating how much you should eat and the quantity and quality of foods that you should eat, what we use are food-based dietary guidelines. And these, if anybody wants to find out more about it, just look look it up through the FAO. um, And they have great detail on that there. And you'll find that there's about 100 countries globally have their own national food-based dietary guidelines. It's depicted as a, a graphical image here, like a plate or um a pyramid and the food pyramid, as we have here in Ireland. And what it's essentially communicating is all of these essential nutrients that we have to eat, the foods that these essential nutrients come from. So rather than you thinking on a daily basis, "Mm, where am I going to get my iron from today? And what food do I eat to get that and how much of it will I need? If we follow these guidelines um, we'll essentially get that right without having to think specifically about the actual nutrients we need to get. So how do we do the same for a healthy planet? So in 2011, the FAO provided a definition of what a sustainable diet was and started to recognize that combination of what we eat and its impact on on the planet. And they define a sustainable diet as being protective and respectful of biodiversity and ecosystems. So if we grow monocultures, that's not going to be respectful of biodiversity and ecosystems. It has to be culturally acceptable. So foods that will work here may not work in other countries and on other continents across the world. And similarly, foods there may not work here. We don't know how to cook with them. We don't know what to serve with them. So it's hard to make maybe a a culturally accessible, healthy and tasty meal with foods we're not familiar with. Accessible, economically fair and affordable. So it's not right if... One family can afford to eat a healthy and sustainable diet and another family cannot. It has to be there for all. And we kind of generally take it as a given, certainly in, in, in Western cultures, that our food is safe to eat. So when you go into the supermarket and you, you buy your food and consume it and make it into a meal afterwards, for the most part, you take it as a given that it's safe and healthy. But all of these factors have to come into a sustainable diet. So it's a lot of elements to get right. So if we take these elements of of what a sustainable diet is, similar to our nutrients, overlay it with some kind of food-based graphical guideline, how do we get to guidelines that are both sustainable and healthy, that protects us as the current generation and the future generations to come on the planet as well? So it's quite a a massive challenge. um, And I've literally dipped my toe probably in, in, in the water of, of of that challenge as well. So what do sustain sustainable and healthy dietary guidelines look like? Um, there has been lots proposed that have been met with both positive and, and negative um opinions. The most popular one here on the left of my screen is probably the Eat Lancet report. Um, and the Eat Lancet very much um I suppose shook up the whole debate on diet and sustainability and got a lot more people talking about it. There are elements of it that are very good. There are elements of it that I feel is, is very restricted. And um, There's one aspect, I, it's 60 grams of potato a day um, is the maximum that they recommend, which is one of your baby potatoes, if you like, or a potato the size of an egg. And um, Now, I'm not sure how many people would eat potatoes that are that low, and they recommend consuming rice. But the rice has to travel 4,000 miles to Ireland for us to consume it, whereas we can grow the potatoes in our, in our back garden or even on our, our, our balconies. Um, and the carbon footprint of both foods is very similar as well. So some recommendations in there are good, but it, it, it's next to impossible to provide a global set of recommendations because they won't have that economically fair or that accessible and culturally appropriate piece for everybody. More recently, earlier in the summer this year, the Climate and Health Alliance in Ireland um, launched their report called Fixing Food Together, Transitioning to a More Healthy and Sustainable Food System. And it's a very good report. If you Google it, you you can download it from their website. Um, And it's quite similar to what our current healthy eating guidelines are with some layers of sustainability coming into it as well. So where this journey, if you like, for me began was looking at um, the Irish food consumption data, uh, national data set for the Irish population, and to try and see what foods are people eating or what patterns of, p- of food um, are people consuming and is it sustainable or not. Um, and this work started and was published um, along with my colleagues back in 2017. So just very briefly to give you a little bit of background to the National Food Consumption Survey and the data I would have been working with, if anybody here was a participant in the survey, you would have filled out a diary like this for um, every single meal that you consumed. And it wasn't just... uh, tea and cheese sandwich for lunch that you had but it even went into the detail of whether it was brown or white whether you'd butter or margarine what kind of milk you had in your um, sandwich or in your tea rather and then the cheese that you had in your sandwich so very specific very detailed um, intake data it's if you could describe this survey as a car you would say it was a Rolls-Royce it is one of the best surveys and data collection methods that's carried out uh, across Europe and it's recognized for its its detail and its quality so for the survey there was 1500 people completed this diary over four days and then we want to take all of these foods and look at them from an intake and a composition perspective so when we're looking at the the nutrient composition of foods we use this book that's known as McCanson Widdowson composition of foods and it is the go-to verifiable resource for nutrient analysis and and it'll be comparable to other um continents as well so if you look at a hundred grams of red meat from the composition of foods here, or you looked at it from the USDA data in in America, you will see very, very similar nutrient analysis. So the data entry software that we use takes all of the food diaries, applies the nutrient composition database to it, and we get a file afterwards that has all of the food intake for every day of of their um, recording and the analysis of every food they ate at every meal over the four days. So it's a very detailed, very thorough database. So what I did then was I took this database with the food and nutrient work in it and then applied a nutrient or a carbon conversion factor to all of the foods. Now, as I just mentioned in the last slide, that last slide, that McCanson-Widdison Work is very thorough, very detailed, and you can absolutely stand over the values that are used um, for each of the foods. But when it comes to carbon emissions of foods, it's much more difficult. And to give you an example, um, for the work here, we use some UK data and applied a carbon conversion factor of 35 kilos of CO2 um, per kilo of beef. But when you go to the published literature, that can sometimes be presented as low as 20 kilos or it can be as high as 70 kilos. So the variation in the carbon footprint of foods varies greatly and isn't as reliable as the nutrient analysis that we get. So you just have to work with the best data available um, to you at the time. So we took all of the foods that were consumed, applied a conversion factor to them. And you can see as we go from the more plant based to the animal based foods that the carbon um, footprint goes up. And then we looked at the patterns of consumption. So are there patterns of carbon footprint associated with the foods better, healthier, more sustainable and less sustainable? And we applied statistical analysis to look at the data in this way. So when we did this, um, we came up with three distinct patterns. And just before I I show the patterns here, the, the point I want to make is the type of analysis we use lets the data define the groups. So normally you might say, I want to look at men and women separately or higher social class and lower social class separately. And you're telling the software package, if you like, to split the groups based on these categories. But when we use cluster analysis, the data itself defines the clusters and says, all of these people are similar based on these characteristics. And this group over here, all of those people who in that group are similar based on a set of characteristics, but the two groups are very different from each other. Um, so when we did this, based on the carbon footprint we were getting from the foods we consumed, there was three very distinct patterns identified in the Irish diet. The first one was what we called an unsustainable group, and that was about 25% of the population. They had high intake of processed meats, high intake of your savoury snacks like your crisps and so on, and high intake of alcohol. There were more likely to be men and younger age group as well. Again, another approximately a quarter of the population were what we call the nutritionally sustainable group, and um, they had the highest fruit and veg consumption, and um, in in the diet they had the highest fish consumption. They had the lowest red meat consumption, but they also had the highest dairy food consumption as well. These were meeting the most um, most of the dietary guidelines in terms of BMI weight. Um, fruit and veg intake, nutrient intake and so on. Whereas the unsustainable group were unsustainable both from, from a carbon footprint perspective, but also from a health perspective, they weren't meeting as many dietary guidelines. Then the third group was about half of the population. And and we termed these the culturally sustainable group because it kind of reflected that cultural piece within the Irish context, your meat and two veg consumer very much, if you like. They had the highest red meat consumption of the three groups. They had a moderate amount of dairy consumption, higher than the unsustainable group, but slightly lower than this nutritionally sustainable group. And they had the highest consumption of starchy staples. So your your pasta, your rice, your potatoes, and so on. And that was approximately half of of the population. They tended to be slightly older, again, more females in, in this group. And while they met more dietary guidelines than the unsustainable group, they weren't just as healthy as the nutritional sustainable. Now, if I was a betting person, I would have said this group with the highest red meat consumption are probably have the highest carbon footprint. And I was actually proven wrong. What we found was that the highest carbon footprint was in this unsustainable group. So they were generating the men, the male values are on top here. So the men were generating about nine kilos of carbon per day, while women were generating six kilos of carbon per day in this group. And in the nutritionally sustainable group, it was 7.7 for the men and five for the women, and then slightly lower in the men for this group. So although they had the highest, red meat consumption, their overall carbon footprint of the pattern of foods they were consuming, not necessarily any one specific food, but the pattern of foods that they're consuming generates a very similar carbon footprint to that of the nutritionally sustainable. So in terms of an Irish context, you want to get somewhere in between the two of these groups where these are staying very healthy in terms of being nutritionally sustainable and a good carbon footprint. This group has a good carbon footprint, but we maybe want to get them a- aligned with more nutrient and nutritional guidelines as well. Um, but it was certainly a, a-, a surprising finding that the alcohol here and and savoury snacks, these discretionary foods, as they're known, um, they make a huge contribution to carbon footprint in the diet and yet they're probably the least mentioned food when we hear the debate that's going on around carbon footprint and planetary health. So can we develop a set of guidelines that might um, that might work that will address both that healthy body piece and the healthy planet bit? Um, and if you think of it sometimes you don't need to reinvent the wheel. Sometimes we're doing something already and it might need a little bit of tweaking. And from that perspective then, I thought, let's take the food pyramid. We're familiar with it for about, it's been um, used in Ireland for over 30 years now. When the food pyramid was first launched, there wasn't a mention of dietary sustainability. Acid rain was the environmental concern of the day. So I started off with um, the objective that, if we were to follow the guidelines on the food pyramid and something we're familiar with already, would that also be a more sustainable diet? So taking the food pyramid layer by layer, and if we start with the fruit and vegetables at the bottom, and I showed you at the start of the presentation why it's important to eat fruit and veg, um, and and I'll put my hand up and say I'm guilty of not achieving the five to seven servings a day. Um, but it's something that I cannot emphasize how healthy fruit and veg are and how good they are for you in the diet. But as a population, the average consumption is too low. We're only eating, we're eating less than 200 grams, which is about two and a half um, portions of fruit and veg a day. So we're less than half of our requirement when it comes to rice sorry, um, the whole meal cereals and dairy foods were just about right with the amount that we're consuming. We could probably do it going a bit more on the whole meal side, um, but in terms of the overall amount, we're kind of getting it just about right. Similarly with milk, yogurt and cheese, our intake is is approximately within recommendations. When we get to the protein shelf, we find that we're eating too much from this shelf, a little bit too much. We're not exceptionally out of balance, but we could do with um, tightening tightening in on that shelf fats and oils again are okay and then we get up to the treat shelf now the treat recommendation is not every day maximum once or twice a week so it's not once or twice a day but that much over the the the, the case of a week or the the length of a week we're eating over 600 grams of fruit and veg or, or sorry we're eating over 600 grams from this top shelf of the food pyramid every single day Day, we're eating two to three times more treat foods than we are fruit and veg there at the bottom of the shelf. So the, the pyramid is a very solid structure. They've survived in Egypt for years and that's why it's used as, as a graphical um, communication for the balance of foods that we eat. And we can see when we just take out um, the, the food pyramid in the background, we're completely out of kilter. It's not a solid structure and it's going to collapse on us. And um, so we need to refine where we are in terms of achieving our healthy guidelines. Now, if we followed the food permit guidelines, increased our fruit and veg, brought our meat intake to within what the recommendations are, and halved our our discretionary food consumption now even at having our discretionary food consumption we're going to be outside the guidelines for discretionary foods but it's a starting point it's easier to reduce than completely eliminate so we can see here the 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 light green or mustard colored line is what we're currently eating we need to have it to get down to somewhere that might approximate recommendations and then we need to decrease our meat intake by about a portion a day and that'll bring us down to it in recommended intakes. We need to increase our fruit and veg. We need to more than double it. We're only about 200 grams per day and ideally we'd like to be over 500 grams a day when it comes to fruit and veg. What that'll look like then from the carbon footprint is we can have the carbon footprint coming from our discretionary foods. And you can see here that we have about two kilos of carbon footprint coming from these discretionary foods. So we can bring that down to under one kilo if we have it. If we reduce our meat by one portion, again, we can bring bring down the carbon footprint associated with the the protein shelf. But we need to dramatically increase our fruit and veg and there will be an associated increase in um, fruit and veg carbon footprint um, by virtue of increasing the food. But these changes combined, can save us about 1.6 kilos of carbon a day, which may not sound an awful lot, but if you add that up to 365 days a year and we all eat that bit healthier every day, you're saving approximately a transatlantic flight over the course, over the course of a year. Um, now, whether you decide to bank that or spend it on your transatlantic flight, um, I, I leave it up to you. But not only are we getting that saving in planetary health, but there's the public health saving that we'll get as well. If we're following the healthy eating guidelines, we're going to have less communicable diseases, non communicable diseases, rather, that's associated with an unhealthy diet like heart disease, obesity, and so on. So it's a win win situation, both for the planet, for our personal health, and even the economic health of the country, because there's less expenditure than on healthcare if we're being more healthy as well. So how that's the, the what we are doing. How do we actually do it then? And the guidelines are actually quite simple. You try to incorporate fruit and veg into every single meal that you can. Um, so have at least half of your plate as vegetables. Add in lettuce, tomatoes, cucumbers, sweet corn into your sandwich. Don't just have the meat. Snack on the healthy foods like apples, grapes. They're really easy and convenient. You can put them in your handbag, your school bag, your rucksack and bring them to work with you and you have it there rather than maybe reaching for the unhealthy snack. Juice, we can only have once a day. So if you drink the litre of juice with breakfast, it still only counts for one portion of fruit and veg a day. And then having stir fries for dinners. So they're, they're just easy ways to increase the fruit and veg. If we think about meat, you have your two hands um, and approximately two palms of your hands per day is the amount of meat that you should be consuming. And um, So that depends on, on how big your palm is as well. And then for treats to keep it to the two days a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays, Saturdays and Sundays, definitely not today and tomorrow. Um, so just maintain the two days a week, if possible with the treats and easier said than done. So going back to that one and a half kilos that I just mentioned there that we'd save if we were to follow healthy dietary guidelines, that's one approach to being more sustainable, more balanced. And um, There's a lot of approaches mentioned Um, elsewhere as well. And, And there's one aspect of this I just want to speak about for the next minute or two. And so should we change the food that we're eating or should we change how it's produced and what impact would that have? And it's very easy to say completely eliminate all of the animal protein foods in your diet, replace them with plant foods and you'll get a saving in carbon footprint. But realistically, how easy is that to implement? And um, Are people going to do it? Changing consumer behavior is like turning a ship. It's very slow and a very difficult thing to do. Um, so what might be the best approach and, and what savings are we going to get if we take that approach? So, I took the the food consumption data and how do we look with it to see if we could produce our food more sustainably so before the food leaves the farm you 're looking at about eighty to eighty five percent of the carbon footprint associated with that food happens on the farm. So, can we produce it more sustainably so, as a consumer, when I have the food on on my plate for dinner here this evening. I don't necessarily have to worry about the carbon footprint of it because I know it has been produced very sustainably. So I've just explored some of those ideas. So if we were to, the first scenario, take all of the red meat out of the diet because it's the highest carbon footprint and replace it with legumes. If we replace maybe half of the red meat with half legumes, keep the diet the same edit or, or modify how it's produced. So if, if beef or red meat could be reduced by 25% um, of its carbon footprint by virtue of implementing um, more sustainable practices at farm level, and, and I, I appreciate that comes with its own difficulties and complications, but this is just a, a scenario kind of discussion. If we keep the diet the same, but reduce the carbon footprint associated with producing beef by 30%, keep the diet the same, but reduce the carbon footprint um, by 50%. And this is kind of how it looks. And what you see, this 1.6 is coming up again. So if we were to follow a healthy diet, we can reduce our our carbon footprint by 1.6 kilos a day. If we were to replace all of the red meat in our diet, so we now eat no more red meat, replace the amount of red meat we currently consume with legumes, um, we would save about 1.5 kilos or 1.6 kilos of red meat. Now, we can achieve the same by just being balanced in terms of how we eat. If we do a 50-50 mix of um, legumes and red meat, you'll see we're still getting about 800 grams of of carbon per day from red meat, and we get about a 12% reduction or nearly one kilo um, per day reduction in carbon footprint. And then similarly, if we leave our diet the same, but start to improve the sustainability um, elements of how our food is produced, we can also get reductions in the carbon footprint of our food. So if we could reduce the um, carbon footprint associated with producing red meat, and that's only one food we're changing in the diet, we could get a twelve up to 12% reduction in the carbon footprint of our diet by changing how we produce it and not changing our consumption patterns. So it's just, um, I'm not sure if if my ticker here is actually, mm, they're an awful nuisance when they're in the way. Um, it's just showing there's a, a number of ways you can approach a sustainable diet. It doesn't necessarily have to go down the entirely plant-based route. That even just eating a healthy balance of what we're already doing, which might be a little bit easier, can achieve the same differences as as moving into um um completely changing or completely eliminating foods that that we are eating. So to just take this a little bit further um, and look at foods that we eat every day. I love to cook. and um, it, it's it's my go-to thing at the weekend. I like to explore recipes and see see what i can make for dinner now i'm not going to claim to be a master chef but there's nobody hasn't come back for for dinner again and and usually it's 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 met with success in the household so here's one um idea in terms of how to plan a meal serve your dinner with a side of sustainability an extra helping of health and not cost the earth literally and 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 metaphorically Um, This is one of my go to recipes for during the week. It's easy and convenient and um, will feed plenty and some left over for the freezer as well. The particular recipe book I use, this is the exact recipe that's in the book for for the bolognese, 800 grams of, of, of beef and some other ingredients. And its recommendation is that it serves eight people when i calculate apply the conversion factors i men- mentioned earlier to each of these ingredients add it up we get about 30 kilos in total for this eight portion um bolognese and if you do an online shop i popped all of the ingredients into one of the online um retailers and it was going to cost me 12 euro 83 cents to buy all the ingredients for for this meal if we looked at per serving, the the, the recipe recommends eight servings, and um, we get three point seven kilos per serving of CO two associated with this dish. We have about one sixty per person. It's going to cost to to um, prepare each meal, but we get about this. My fruit and vegometer here. We get about one serving of fruit and veg in this meal. If we change it up slightly, and add in or sorry, first of all, starting with the beef mince here. If we reduce that to 750 grams from the original 800 and now serve 10 people, that's within that 75 gram recommendation portion that we saw on the health eating guidelines earlier. If we take some extra fruit and veg, and this is what will bulk it out, this is what turns it from an eight portion dish into a 10 portion dish, add that into the, the bolognese We now get for all of these um, ingredients, we still have 30 kilos of CO2. So we haven't gone up in carbon. Our price has gone up very slightly from €12 to €15 for the total recipe. But seeing as we're getting 10 servings, it's actually the same price per serving, but it's got a lower carbon footprint. So being 3.7 kilos in the last slide, it's now 3 kilos for this serving. So we're getting a more sustainable meal and we're getting more fruit and veg into it. So we're getting about 2 at least two of our five a day out of this recipe here, all in the one go, <clears throat> at a lower carbon footprint and for the same price. So that makes sense from both the health and a sustainability perspective. Then we can start maybe seeing if we start to include beans in the recipe, what what difference would this make? And very quickly, if we do maybe half mince, half beans, we'll reduce um, the, the serving footprint to 1.8 so we're going from 3 down to 1.8 and it goes it, it's slightly cheaper at 1 euro 27 cent if we replace all of the 750 grams of mince with the same amount of beans we reduce our carbon footprint even further and at the cost of the meal per, for 10 servings somewhat more as well but and and we have the similar fruit and veg because that hasn't changed and there's a whole debate that we can maybe discuss another time on whether we consider the beans to be veg or or protein. And um, so that stays the same. If we look at the nutrient composition, and this is where we start to see that that kind of difficulty between health and sustainability, we see when we go from the eight portions to the 10 portions, our our, our calories drop slightly because we're, we're bringing in the fruit and veg. Our protein drops off a little bit because of the lower amount of of meat that we've put in there. But our zinc vitamin D B12 is still quite good. When we bring in the beans, if we have the recipe that's entirely beans, so the 10 portion recipe with all of the meat replaced with beans, we now see our protein drops off significantly in this scenario. We also see our zinc drop off, our vitamin D drop off, which is already low in the population and our vitamin B12 go down to zero. And then similarly, we see similar decreases if we have the 50-50 meat and beans um, where the protein decreases somewhat um, and some of the micronutrients is, micronutrients decrease in in the the meal as well so it's very hard to get that balance right you need to be aware of what 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 trade offs you're making if you like when you go from one meal to the next depending on whether it's plant based or animal based the other important aspect to to absolutely mention here is These diets aren't suitable for everybody. And and one of the other areas that I do some research in is healthy aging and food consumption and food patterns in the healthy, older population and prevention of Sarcopenia, which is the loss of muscle mass. Um, And protein for anybody over 65, or even to start thinking about it as early as our 40s, protein is really important to maintain the muscle that we have, the strength and integrity of the muscle that we have, because if our protein goes down, we actually start to lose our muscle mass. And so it's really important to maintain a good level of protein. And the protein that's in red meat is much more digestible and has a better profile of amino acids than the protein we get from um, plant-based foods. Zinc and B12 are two other really essential um, nutrients for the older consumer as well. So it's just to be aware of if you make those changes to more plant-based, you do need to be cognizant and, and consider where am I going to replace some of those micronutrients from. So I just am um, ready to finish up with some final comments here. And it's um, considered the consequences of your well-intentioned changes. So as, as I said earlier, I like to to cook in the kitchen and some days, um, sorry, that's just coming out. And um, some days I might attempt the, the flexitarian or even the plant-based meal. And when I did, <laughs> this was the consequence of it. So <clears throat> one of my Daughters could methodically pick out every one of the chickpeas out of the bolognese. She ate most of the veg, so I did well on that bit, but the chickpeas essentially went. And um, but luckily, I've Molly, the collie, who happily consumed the the, the plant based meal. And um, and then just it, again in terms of the well intentioned changes, this sounds brilliant. We're proud of our science centre; it's a hundred percent paperless, and everybody's cheering. And yes, that's brilliant, great success. Until you go to the bathroom. So on that, I leave it um, for questions. I have included, actually, just before I go to that, I want to mention the the SUHI Guide Project. This is um, a Department of Agriculture funded project that I'm working on at the moment. I'm coordinating with UCD, UCC and Queen's. And we have put people on two different diets. We've just finished this this intervention study where one group of people have been put on a diet where they're following the healthy eating guidelines. And the other group of people have been put on a diet where they have a much lower carbon footprint and a lot of the animal protein taken out of their diet. So they have about a one and a half to two kilo lower carbon footprint diet than the healthy eating guidelines. And we're literally just finished the intervention study. Everybody has gone through this diet for 12 weeks and we're now going to start looking at are there different health indicators between those following a healthy diet versus those, those following a very low carbon, very low animal protein diet. And we, we'll, for the first time ever, we we'll have some of these in in vivo studies, if you like, looking at absolute um biomedical measures of what, what what the consequences are of a healthy diet and can we get the same benefits from a lower carbon footprint diet so it'll be much more and um, by this time next year we'll have very solid evidence to see what direction um, our diets should take and if the, the presentation is shared afterwards there are some quick reads of, of the research here and then the actual published literature that um, goes with, with the research is in the slides as well thank you very much
0: Thank you, Sinead. Uh, That's fascinating. I I went while you were doing that and my guilty conscience got me to just set up a poll, which is something I don't think we've done before on the on on the webinar. So I asked people, uh, are you meeting the guidelines in the in the pyramid? And self-declared, so I don't know how accurate that's likely to be, but 40% say they are and 60% say say they're not. Is that That's probably typical enough, is it?
1: It's probably re- fairly reflective. And I think even sometimes like Christmas Day, we won't be meeting the guidelines yeah. <laughs> in, in in the food pyramid. So I think it's you have to look at it over a period of time. Some days we're very good at achieving it and some people achieve it all of the time. Um, and I suppose the important point to make there is, as well, Pat, is that we don't always eat for health. A lot of the time as consumers, we're driven by taste. So if a food doesn't taste nice, we're not going to eat it regardless of whatever health benefit or health claim that we make. And about 60% of the population eat for taste and not for health. So it would probably pretty much the, the 40% who said they do meet it are probably those health orientated, health driven consumers that, that, that we, we want more people to be like.
0: And the 60% of us are the ones who are cringing when you are going, <laughs> going through that.
1: I, I, my fingers crossed for myself the whole way through the presentation.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the surprising things uh, uh, that you mentioned, I, I, and I suppose uh, I would have thought that the younger people would have had the more healthy diet, but that's not something you're, you're finding. And is that a, a worry or is that something that changes as people progress through, their, through the years?
1: Yeah, we do see that. And now, I suppose, first of all, what I should say is that those people who were in that younger 18 to 35 category of, of the data I presented there are probably now in the 40 category today. So that data is more than 10 years old, but the, the patterns don't shift that much within the population. Um it's mixed on that younger demographic, some are very healthy and and follow maybe more likely to follow the the flexitarian type of diet and um, but it's still at best recent board be data at most there's about twenty percent of people following a flexitarian diet and then that value decreases and it is more prevalent in the younger population but not maybe as as prevalent as we think it might be but you're correct in terms of i suppose as we age the 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 risks of a poor diet become more evident to us so we're more likely to try and preserve the health that we have and, and turn things around and eat more healthily or, or reduce alcohol consumption as well so there's there's always been um we see it across a lot of population data where you do see as you get older the diet
0: tends to get healthier
2: okay just
0: okay. uh, so a question right?
2: So, yeah, a lot of questions come in, sorry you want to ask one
0: first pat? Yeah. Yeah, no, just just one thing to, to clarify, and you, and you you mentioned the variability, and I, I, I suppose it's something I would have seen the variability in the carbon footprint that's quoted for, for red meats. And I, I suppose there's two challenges for you as a researcher that you have international standards and you have then I mean the Irish red meat is effectively coming in with a 20 kilo uh, a footprint. Whereas internationally, that tends to be quite a bit higher. And the question then arises, what is appropriate to use in in, in, in the studies, particularly when there's that big of a, a, a gap between what's, what's quoted?
1: Yeah, it, it, exactly. And I think that's why it's always really important. There's no, where we use the mccannson Widdison for nutrient analysis, and nobody would query your data when you're saying you're using that mccannson Widdison there is no equivalent in ireland or anywhere else of 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 that book for carbon footprint or any of any of the metrics for In environmental impact of food Um, and and as you know pat uh, uh, way way better than i do the different farming practices will impact that so in one if you do an analysis in one country it can be very different based uh, in comparison to another country Um, and you're even you can't go to the one reference for all of your values you have to select lots of different references so i think that the take-home messages there is not that um the thirty five i use is perfect or in the middle are absolutely right but and it is the animal protein that we see that variation on it's when when you look at the different databases the plant based pro or the plant based foods like your fruit and veg are similar enough and yeah. um, but it's the animal protein where we see the big variation and wanted like just even to point out as well coffee uh, depending on what database you use, coffee can be worse than red meat. In, in some databases, it'll give a higher value because if they're taking into account the changes of land use and deforestation, that really drives up that conversion factor of, of coffee. Um, and then the other piece to just emphasize again is the discretionary food. So while the individual carbon footprint of each of the foods isn't very high, when we combine all of those foods together and see what we're getting from it in total, because we're eating so much of them, and um, the, the carbon footprint coming from those foods collectively, has, has a huge impact as well, but tends to be forgotten
0: about in this debate. Seamus, as you say, plenty of questions coming in. So if you want yeah, to- Yeah, I will start
2: from the top there, Pat. So Shane, yep. given our ability to grow fruit and veg in this country, if we were to move to high proportion of fruit and veg, how might this affect our carbon footprint? Um, or would the Irish diet be extremely bre- uh, bland in winter when a lot of local fruits aren't available?
1: Yeah, that, that's a, a brilliant question. And, and it, it's, it's a it's a huge question. Um, ideally you would like to be able to provide the domestic supply of um, fruit and veg and that what we would eat would be coming from local growers and there's putting on say a very carbon footprint hat flying it in from America or Africa doesn't have all that much of a carbon footprint impact relative to growing it locally and so that's one piece but yet the kind of your intuitive head says it makes sense to get the one that's been grown locally over the road or anywhere in Ireland, really given our small island is, is, is relatively local. And we're, we have put in for funding myself and some other colleagues have applied for funding within Chagas to look at that very question so could we meet that deficit in the diet with domestically produced fruit and veg and if we were to meet it what would the impact be are we going to have like bland months in the winter where where you can't meet demand and are people happy to give up strawberries with their Christmas dinner when it's not in season if you like so could we revert back to that in season um, and locally produced foods and maybe look at kind of more traditional methods that would have been used some time ago to get through that leaner winter period especially like going back to the, the f- fermenting and preservation methods that some of our parents might have used and um, when there was less food being imported in that regard And um, but kind of I suppose it, it's again it's kind of turning that shipper Around um, and and it'll also be looking at can we provide foods that can be grown here as alternatives to foods we're importing. So, say the avocado trend took off so much um, in the last number of years, but they're coming in mostly from from the United States. And um, some of the, the squashes and pumpkins can be a good replacement for avocado. So, could we? And they can be grown here. So, trying to identify what alternatives could be grown here as a replacement. Um, and maybe if, if, if we get funding for this project, you might invite me back <laughs> to share the findings to that question. Um, but it, it, it hopefully could be somewhat pos- possible even to fill some of that gap with domestically grown produce.
2: Yeah, and there's another question there very similar there as well. Is there a need for a policy at a national level um, to stop importing foodstuffs we can obtain in Ireland, such as animal protein and certain fruit and veg? So including the fruit and veg more important where it really comes from?
1: Um it is i suppose the the primary reason to to stop importing would be to support national growers um but it' it's it's that it's that age old question coming up to an election do you want to stop <laughs> stop your electorate from maybe eating avocados or kiwis um You know, if if, if they're a big Kiwi consumer, they might vote for you if you put in policy to ban Kiwis, let's say, you know, so it's just I suppose it's that the the policy piece isn't necessarily my area of, of expertise. But there's certainly a role for policy to try and encourage because one of the recommendations is local and seasonal food as as a sustainability measure. Um, And I suppose that sustainability measure has that economic piece in terms of supporting the domestic um, market. I think
0: Pat, go next there. Yes. You discussed uh, legumes. Uh, 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 Is there a combination of legumes and grains ideal for? absorption in the, in in the body or what's the the i suppose the the, the optimal in 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 that space
1: um i'm I, I don't really know the the answer to to that question that was asked um, optimally it, it, it's a balance of all of of, of the foods and um, and there's certain combinations in which we can eat food that can help um absorption of foods so having Tea with your meal isn't very, necessarily very good because the, the the phytic acid in tea can slow down absorption of certain nutrients. Whereas having um, orange juice with your meal can help absorb um, iron, especially the the vitamin C um, in a juice helps. I suppose it, it like it they they get co-absorbed at the same time and one helps the other. So there, there's a balance in that respect in terms of getting nutrients absorbed in into the bloodstream. And um, in terms of, of legumes and cereals, it, it's about keeping within within the guidelines um, of, of what to eat.
0: There's a question there about the, I suppose the, the white meats as opposed to the red meats and where do they fit in? Uh, are they a replacement? You talked about some of the, the kind of the essential nutrients that come from red meats. Are they in white meats as well? Or is there, I suppose, a, a mix of both kind of required for in, in the healthy diet space?
1: Yeah, so when we go into the the white meat piece, especially chicken, pork, and um, turkeys that we'll be eating in in a couple of weeks' time, it, its carbon footprint is much much lower. And um, we see about um, the chicken. I think I might have had it in in that little um, scale. Our chicken is around seven kilos of carbon per kilo of um, meat so from a carbon footprint perspective it is much much lower but the zinc is the one that's mainly in red meat and and the iron is higher in red meat as well and we absorb it very well um, from red meat too so it's just if you do make any significant changes and entirely eliminate a food type or an entire food group so if you go if you were deciding think i'll be more sustainable i'll eliminate red meat replace it with white meat entirely and um, you have to be conscious of what nutrients you're now eliminating as well and where you will get that um, alt- alternative source of these nutrients. So it's just, and and if that's an entire food group, then there's there's probably even more nutrients that you need to think about. Okay,
0: there's a um, question there in relation to, uh, I suppose, behavioural piece, and and that's a lot of where I think you're coming to the table with with with, with your research on. And I suppose the specific question is asking about do the food processors or the food retailers have a potential role in in influencing our behavior around food? And I suppose we could broaden that question out. What are the key things? Like like we can provide people with information, but that doesn't necessarily achieve changes in behavior. And what can we do or what should we be trying to do to achieve that change in behavior for those of us who are in the 60 percent?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's that's a brilliant question. Whoever asked that, and again, like the discretionary foods, the retailer piece is is forgotten in all of these debates. Because ultimately, as a consumer, you're going into the retailer, and whatever's on the shelf in the supermarket on that particular day determines what you're buying. Whether you're like bringing in that whole domestically grown or imported foods, your your choice is limited to what you see in front of you. So we were imagining scenarios like if you could imagine going into the supermarket and Thinking about eating the rainbow of fruit and veg. That if you have this lovely rainbow arc you go through as you start off, if 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 the supermarket was laid out, let's say like the food permit. So you start with a really big section that's like a rainbow, lovely music. Don't forget to get seven of me. Make sure you have at least five. Do you know if if we could be driven, if you like, or guided around the supermarket, don't take too much here, only one or two treats per person in the family per week, something like that. I think definitely where the, the retailers um, are, are not laid out in that way, if you like. And there's the buy one get one free, the sweets at the checkout, and um, those those foods were meant to limit are, are, are put there in, in front of you. And um, there was like, say for example, and and that's like that environmental piece is huge. There was one day I was um, when I was on, on on my my healthy drive, um, I was going from Dublin to Cork for a meeting and, and stopped at one of the the filling station places and apple greens or whatever they are on the way down. I had to actively seek out where was there a fruit bowl that I could get a banana or an apple. I wasn't looking for anything exotic and I'd go through an entire snake of sweets before I found this very sad, lonely looking fruit bowl with some very brown bananas and apples with a lot of brown spots on them as well. So that piece isn't put upfront in in front of us it's it's like it's nearly if you imagine turning the the pyramid upside down it's the stuff at the top we're presented with first so it's making it's it's retailers have a huge part to play in making that that i suppose the easy the healthy choice and the sustainable choice the more easy choice for consumers as well
2: yeah Just to time. Got two questions going yeah. yeah so uh, if we replace the red meat and dairy sorry if we were to replace red meat and dairy and replace it with plant-based food that's important from all around the world, how will that affect our carbon footprint? And the second part, the next question was, if we reduce our red meat and a healthy diet, could we save more than 1.6 kgs of CO2, I think I take it as.
1: Yeah, if I suppose if we entirely take it, well, the the scenario, that I'll, I'll answer the second question first, maybe Seamus, that scenario where I took out entirely the red meat, and... Um, based on the current dietary patterns that were at that time for those 1500 adults with red meat alone we'd only save probably about 1.6 kilos because within the meat shelf we also have the, the chicken and pork and, and, and other meats um, so with red meat alone that's about all we would save If and that's that's taking into account the extra carbon you're going to generate eating the legumes. And um, so it's not, as like it, it's not, you're taking 35 kilos of, of carbon out of it. You're, you're also putting in whatever kilos associated with producing the, the alternative food. Um, the second question was, if we removed all animal protein, so all dairy,
2: all... Um, so if we go to the red meat and dairy and replace it with plant-based food as imported from around the world, how will that affect the carbon footprint?
1: Um... I would be more, it, it would probably, if you were to do the calculation on the back of an envelope, you're probably going to get a, a lower carbon footprint. Um, but not, there, there's two things to start there. If I present you with a glass of cola and I present you with a glass of milk, they both have exactly the same carbon footprint. So here's a plant-based product, if you like, um, that if you were to ask me which one is more nutrient, nutri- nutritious and, and, and complete, the milk will win hands down and um, so if I now change to a plant-based drink and and I'll, I'll that's not going into the 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 oat drinks and and almond drinks and so on as well um so there's that consideration to make you're not necessarily replacing it with a better food and um, with some of the almond drinks it has to be fortified with calcium it has to be fortified with vitamin D so we're losing out on some of the essential nutrients that we do get in dairy so that's another loss The other aspect as well is um Dairy foods are a really, really complex food. We don't even fully understand them yet. So there are other bioactive compounds within milk that's really good for us as well that interacts with other foods. Um, so you don't know what the impact would be if we were to remove that entirely. So I think if you do the calculation, yes, you probably get a lower carbon footprint, but I doubt you'd have to, you'd have a healthier diet. And again, that piece, if you make that huge change and remove an entire food group, there will be nutrient considerations you have to make. And now we need to produce more supplements to make sure that we're getting um the 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 vitamins and and nutrients. So we we have to look at it in a
2: round and Sinead, really is what you're what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, yeah. 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 Do you want to go again, panel, just conscious time? Yeah. No, I, we're 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 pretty much out
0: of time. I think one of the 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 comments that's coming through is is an appreciation uh, yeah. uh, from a lot of people about the balance in the in the discussion that's that's oh, there. Uh, and uh, uh, and I suppose we generally see in the news an awful lot of of very much polar. Uh, and it, I, it's nice to get that balance. And I think people appreciate it. So uh, uh, thank you very much for that. Uh, in terms of other questions, uh, I suppose there's there's one, I suppose, maybe it's just a good one to finish on. Do you see that there will be changes in the recommended, uh, in recommendations for diet in, in Ireland in the near future? Is there something, anything coming down the line or are we pretty good with our our, our pyramid that's there?
1: Um, we're pretty good with our pyramid. That's there. There's like, as as individuals, we haven't evolved to have different requirements. Um, so our requirements are essentially still the same. And um, the pyramid works. It probably. If I was to be critical of it, the point I would make is that the, the food pyramid is based on health and communicated on the basis of health. So if you were if, if, if you were a food company trying to promote this idea of a food pyramid, you wouldn't promote it on health, Pat, because you want to make a profit. You want your product to succeed. I would be promoting it on taste. And I think you can really sell the fact that the convenience, the taste of an apple, let's say, can sometimes far exceed that of the, the treat shelf. On the top, so it's it's not always about health. It's eat this, and you'll have a tasty diet, and and it's kind of more the health piece being more subtle. By the way, you might be a little bit healthier if you do it as well.
2: Maybe there's one comment, or maybe to finish on Pat, I think someone put in there that he was reminded by someone who told him when they supermarket shopping, always stick to the outside aisles. That's where the good <laughs> stuff is and the nutrition stuff. And They're one amazing. of the best
1: bits, as well, I suppose. There, there's so much more to this whole piece of research that that you can't cover in a short webinar. The food waste piece, as well. If we go to the shops with a shopping list and only buy what you need, and um, th- that's a good thing too. But th- those outer aisles is a good recommendation as well.
0: Yeah. yeah, and and I'm I'm reminded in terms of behaviour. I'm reminded. I remember uh, visiting our our equivalent advisory services in in Denmark. But on the way in, there was a fruit cart and everybody was encouraged to take a free piece of fruit uh, uh, as the start to the day. And uh, I just thought it was something really good to get the, to, to get good habits going. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. Really appreciate you, you coming in and talking appreciate to us. And, and Thanks uh, for the opportunity. You're, you're welcome. Uh, n- uh, just next week, we're, we're going to be joined by Anne Goggin and her, uh, some colleagues, uh, Tom Drennan and Philip Murphy, uh, talking about the Waters of Life uh, 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 project, which is looking at our high-status waters and looking at measures to try and, and improve the status of those high-status waters. So look, looking forward to that. So until next week, I'd say a thank you to, to Mary in the in the background, thanks to Sinead and, and, and Seamus, and look forward to seeing you next week. You've been listening to the podcast version of the Chagisk Signpost Series